Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to Luke chapter 14 verses 25 through 33. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now large crowds were traveling with him and he turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you intending to build a tower does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or, what king, going out to wage war against another king, will not sit down first and consider whether he is able, with 10,000, to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot, then, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. So, therefore, none of you can become my disciples if you do not give up all your possessions. This is the word of God for us, the people of God, and together we say, thanks be to God. We've just come out of this season in the month of August where we were exploring children's stories. We were unpacking this story time and, and, and uh, reflecting on these stories that, you know, they have a lesson to teach, the, uh, to teach our children, and it's the kind of lesson that we think, that's really nice for our children. I'm not going to follow it. I'm an adult. I don't have to follow those kind of lessons. Well, it's a very intentionally placed series because it was one that was meant to prepare us for this next one. Uh, this series that we're going to be in in the month of September reflects on some of the stories that Jesus presented us with. Jesus taught in parables. He was a storyteller, and he gave us uh, sometimes difficult-to-hear lessons in these parables. And as we explore this over the uh, coming weeks, we're going to be trying to see the lessons that we might be a little bit too familiar with, so familiar with that we no longer think that we need to live that kind of life. So Jesus was a storyteller, a carpenter by trade, sure, an evangelist, absolutely, uh, but most specifically, he was a storyteller. That's how he approached the crowds. Uh, and at one point, even, his storytelling and his parables became so, I don't know if they were frustrating or just difficult or plain weird, but his own disciples come to him and ask, and this is in Matthew 13, why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answers, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. The reason I speak to them in parables is that seeing they do not perceive, and hearing they do not listen, nor do they understand. Here, Jesus is quoting from a passage in Isaiah where uh, God, through Isaiah, is speaking about how the hearts of the people have become dull. No longer do they see, even though they might be looking. No longer are they listening or understanding, even though they might be hearing. Have you ever been 
looking for something before and it's, it's actually sitting right there in front of you, but it doesn't matter that it's right there in front of you because still you can't see it. And you have to have somebody else point it out to you. This happened to me a, a couple of days ago as I, uh, I, was wearing, I, I was looking for my glasses and I was looking for my glasses everywhere all across the parsonage. And if you've ever been to the parsonage, you know it's a large house. And so I'm all over the place looking for these glasses. And finally, I call out to my wife, Kristen, because she's like, what are you looking for? I'm like, have you seen my glasses? And she says, have you seen your glasses? I said, that's why I'm looking. She says, what are you looking through? They were on my face. Yes, one of those kind of, do you ever have those kind of moments? Or perhaps you've been in a conversation with somebody before and you realize that uh, that person has said something new and you cannot remember what you heard or how on earth you got to this point in the conversation because it just so happened that there was a squirrel or a butterfly that ran by and it reminded you of that one time uh, 10 or so years ago that, oh, that one thing happened and you've had a whole reflection in your head and you've completely missed out on the conversation you were supposed to be having. That's why I often say to my wife, you never told me that. <laughs> yes, she did. <laughs> Yes, she did. This is, this is why Jesus teaches in parables, in stories, because our attention is often divided. Uh, our, our attention is often more focused on what's going on with us rather than what Jesus is trying to teach us. And so we need a connecting point to help uh, those stories make sense of what we need to be learning. And uh, sometimes Jesus uses some fairly harsh words in his teachings. And his disciples are left to figure out why on earth he would say something so ridiculous. And the answer, or at least the lesson, ends up lying somewhere in the midst of that story. In our text today, Jesus gives us a pretty radical call on our lives. Did you hear it when we first read it? Or were you thinking about that time 10 years ago and you know, missed it? Jesus says, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. I don't know how I feel about that, Jesus. And with this radical call on our life, he backs it up with two parables. One about building a tower and one about going to war. I don't know about you, but I've never built a tower and I've never gone to war. So these didn't really connect for me all that well. Uh, but that's part of the context of this that we wrestle with today. You see, the point of this story, as we're going to unpack, is that it's, it's to allow those who are following Jesus to differentiate themselves from those who are following Jesus around. Do you hear that distinction? To differentiate those who are following Jesus from those who are following Jesus around. The passage opens up, now large crowds were traveling with him. They were just following him around. But at the end of the day... The crucifixion, the death, the resurrection, there were only a few who were left following. You see, Jesus wants the people to know the cost 
of discipleship. And so we start unpacking what does it mean to follow Jesus, to be a disciple. So I turn that question to you all for today's uh, call and response time. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Have we thought about it before? Or are we just kind of in that mood where like, Michael, we really don't want to talk to you this morning. To live as he did. Yeah, that's good. That's good. What else? To be changing, to be more like him. Definitely. Yeah. To follow in faith. Yes, faith is absolutely a part of it. To love what he loved. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, following Jesus is uh, an interesting concept. I mean, we look at those who actually did follow him, and they gave up a lot. Jesus said to some who tried to follow him, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You know, these kinds of things. So I, I then turn to a different question that might shed some light on the first one. Is following Jesus supposed to be easy? No. Yeah, there we go, yeah. Thank you, thank you, Lee, yeah. I see, I see a lot of heads shaking. No, 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 I don't, I don't think so. Uh, no, yeah, uh, I think that's pretty fair to say. And I think, I, I would wager that most of us could agree with that logically. Following Jesus, it's not supposed to be easy. In fact, Jesus specifically says, we turn to... Uh, my least favorite gospel, John, uh, and Jesus says uh, to, to his disciples, in this world you will have trouble. It's, it's, it's going to be troublesome. It's going to be difficult. And we can give that answer. We can give that answer and believe that following Jesus is not a simple task. So, why do we make it so simple? Why is it not one of our top priorities? Why do we put off doing for Christ, living like Christ? Because of excuses like, my schedule's pretty full, I don't think I have the time to do that. Or, I'm pretty tired, maybe we'll try this another day. I'm not able to do those kinds of things anymore. I'll leave it for the next generation to do. Or perhaps it's football Saturday and you better believe that it is more sacred to me than fellowship, than acts of service and I'm going to be in my sanctuary, the stadium, before I end up in the sanctuary of the church during football season, right? We have our excuses in order to make following Jesus more simple, to make following Jesus easier for me, even though we know logically it's not supposed to be that way. So, 
no raising hands for this next question or responses because I don't want you to be called out or anything. How many of you, I just want you to reflect in your heart, how many of you believe that the words in Scripture are true and we should follow them? Again, reflect on that question, yeah? George, you didn't follow directions. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> okay. How many of you now believe that the words of Jesus are especially important? You know, you're one of those red-letter Christians, and if it's, if it's in red in my Bible, you better believe that means it's important. And we should live our lives the way Jesus taught. So with those two questions in mind, how many of you hate your parents, your spouse, children, siblings, because Jesus said so? Do you hate them? Yeah. Okay, now we're in an uncomfortable space. Right, Jesus said this. If any of you comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brother or sister, they cannot be my disciple. Boom, right there on the page. And yet we leave this place and we don't hate those people in our lives. Here's where it gets fun. See, I don't want you to get me wrong. I personally am not a fundamentalist. I do not believe in simply taking the English words off of a page that has been translated dozens of times across thousands of years in a society substantially different from our own and saying, these are the rules and if you don't live by them, you're going to H-E double hockey sticks. Because you can't say that word, right? <laughs> no, I, if you, if you ever catch me doing anything like that, I need you to report me immediately to the district superintendent and have me removed from ministry. That is not the kind of pastor I ever want to be. Rather, I, I'm, uh, I'm, while I'm not a fundamentalist, I am a critical contextualist, which means that I prefer to unpack the context of Scripture through a critical lens and understand the lesson that can be learned from this instead of looking for the easy answer. Because the easy answer is right there on the page. We just pick up that verse and we'll set it over here and we say, all right, that's what we do. But Jesus wasn't a person of easy answers and following Jesus isn't supposed to be easy. So we get into the critical context of all of this. And so when I ask how many of you hate your parents, spouse, children, and siblings because Jesus said so, what I'm really getting at here is that I imagine and I pray that no one is going to leave this place and go to their loved ones and say, I hate you, and then leave everything behind to go on a mission trip for the rest of their lives. Please don't do that. That's not what Jesus is saying here. That would, I feel like, make you a fairly heartless person if that was something that you just chose to call up everyone you love and then tell them you hate them and then disappear for the rest of your life. Please don't do that. So... What do we do with Jesus' words if they are not simply rules for us to pick off the page? Here, I think we need to seek the lesson. And this one seems to be about our priorities. You see, 
the church in the U.S. and really across the West is in decline. There's like no question about it. It's, it's in deep, steep decline. And it's not because we've become too lenient on the rules. It's because we've stopped counting the cost of following Christ and refrained or reframed our priorities to suit ourselves. I'm not a quitter. Um, I, 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 I don't quit things. Uh, and it's, it's not because I overly care about them most of the time. It's more so because I'm a kind of a prideful person my confession to you all. I don't quit because I don't want to be embarrassed by quitting. I don't want to be like the guy in scripture that builds a tower and, or tries to build a tower and gets halfway through and has to quit and then everybody ridicules me. I'm very sensitive to that kind of stuff, so I'm not a quitter. There are two times in my life where I have been a quitter. And I feel like there are probably a lot more than that, but two times actually come to mind where I have been a quitter. The first was in high school. Uh, my best friend and I at the time, we were like hey, you know what? We kind of want to be fit. We kind of want to exercise and stuff like that, but we need a little bit of motivation. So let's go join the track team. Great idea for two guys that don't run that much. Uh, <laughs> and so we went to the track coach and said, hey, can we join the team? And he was like, sure, come to practice this afternoon. And we were like, this afternoon? It doesn't start like next month or something. Oh, y'all have practice most afternoons? And we have to run at all those practices? We put our names down on the list for the track team and did not show up for track that afternoon. <laughs> Uh, the second time that comes to mind was whenever I was in college. I started playing trumpet whenever I was in the uh, seventh grade and played trumpet all through middle school and high school and uh, got a scholarship into college to play trumpet and then also started doing the percussive instruments as well as they, if they needed an extra hand. And so uh, I was in the marching band uh, at, uh, in college. Um, and for those of you who, who haven't been uh, in marching band before, it is a full-time job. Uh, not only do you have like your individual practices and stuff, but you also have the group practices that go on every single afternoon from 3.30 to 6. Every single afternoon from 3.30 to 6. And then on Saturdays, game days, you're awake at 6 a.m. to be able to be out there for practice at uh, 7 a.m. Uh, so that you can run through everything on the field before the game starts setting up and you can go back and change and do another practice before you have to march in the parade and then do the pregame show and then do the halftime show and your whole Saturday is lost before you know it. And so it's a full-time job. And I, like I said, been playing since seventh grade and I made it all the way through my junior year of college. And my senior year of college, something changed. A girl. <laughs> and she's my wife now, uh, so very grateful for that. Um, but I realized that uh, she being in a sorority, she wasn't going to be somebody that I could uh, just kind of like be around all the time still being in band. So I shifted all of my priorities and my full-time band job and quit band uh, 
in order to be able to go to the tailgating events that her sorority was at, in order to be able to, in the afternoons, walk with her from our last class to wherever we were going instead of having to go back to the uh, band room. And I did all of this with uh, a lot of caveats. No more band scholarship. And uh, also, there was one really cool thing that I found out about this marching band whenever I first joined. They gave us brand new instruments brand spanking new instruments, a beautiful trumpet uh, that I had in my hands. And after graduation, we got to keep those instruments. But I quit my senior year, and so I did not get to keep that instrument. My priorities shifted, right? I saw something else and counted the cost of what I was going to have to go through because of something that seemed a little bit more worth it to me. And so while I've never been a person who's actually built a tower before or even tried, and while I've never been a person who's tried to go to war before, these stories don't really resonate with me, I do have similar stories of counting the cost of what I actually want to invest my life in, about what I consider a priority. And I'm sure you do as well. These two parables are stories of counting the cost, what is worth it to us, what is our priority. Counting the cost of discipleship means understanding whether or not you can follow through or if something is going to hold you back. As such, Jesus says, none of you can become my disciples if you do not give up all your possessions. That's at the end of our passage today. And this is a pretty common request of Jesus. Jesus tells people this fairly often. You need to sell your possessions, give the proceeds to the poor, and then you can come and follow me. Because Jesus understands that our possessions too often end up becoming our obsessions. And Jesus wants our undivided attention. But there's still that part from earlier that's nagging at me, and it's the part about hating our loved ones. I mean, what's up with that? How could Jesus actually ask that? Well, remember that the lesson is in the story, and the story asks us if we can finish the task at hand. So, when Jesus is telling us, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself cannot be my disciples, we should be viewing that statement through the lens of the two parables that follow. The one building a tower and the king going to war must both, both evaluate if they can complete their task. But it's more than just if they can complete it. It's a value decision. Is it worth it to even try? Making a choice based on what is worth it to us. And it's a judgment call. Putting our priorities in line with where they actually are. You see... The word for that we as uh, English speakers translate as hate there at the beginning, if one does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brother and sister, even life itself, that word uh, in the Greek is miseo. And that word is not what it means in English. This is why I'm not a fundamentalist, I'm a critical contextualist. Because that word is actually a comparative word. It's similar to like or as, but it's a comparative word based on ethics. 
Okay, now before I get way too deep into something that's kind of unnecessary for us to talk about, just know that if we were to adequately translate this passage, which we often don't because we're not very good at interpreting a dead, revived language from a society 2,000 years ago that's completely different from our own, if we were to adequately translate this passage, it would read more like this. Whoever comes to me and does not love their father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, even life itself, less than God, cannot be my disciple. It's a comparative word. And we translate it as hate because we don't understand the comparative nature of, uh, of that kind of conceptual context there. So we misread what Jesus is offering for us. Now here's the thing. It's not meant to make it easier for us. Jesus knows that we have things in our life that we put first, even before him. And he is saying, if these things will lead you to give up on this journey halfway through, then you cannot be my disciple because true disciples will finish the journey. He's asking us to evaluate the other things in our life, our possessions, life itself, our loved ones. Are they things that are going to hinder us in what Christ has called us to do? Earlier, I asked the following, uh, I asked if following Jesus was meant to be easy. And I think we all agreed that the answer is no. However, we still want to make it easy. We want Jesus to fit nicely and neatly into our lives rather than allowing ourselves to be shaped into the life that Jesus is calling us to. And this is why the church is in decline. We say we want to do it, but once we figure out what it really entails, we give up like I did whenever I was signing up for the track team. Or we get far enough into it to feel good about ourselves, but we quit because we shift our priorities like I did after lots of years of marching band. All for a girl. Worth it. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Jesus does give us a difficult challenge, one that requires us to really consider if it's worth it, one to challenge us. So, my challenge for each and every one of us today and moving forward is to wrestle with Jesus on this journey, to wrestle with Jesus. Jesus speaks to us in parables so that we might grasp the concept a little bit better, but the context of what he's saying is essential. We don't have the same context, so we have to wrestle with the passage in order to come to understand its deeper meaning. So whenever I say wrestle with Jesus, what I'm saying is don't just take his words at face value because there's something we missed in translation. And there's something we missed being 2,000 years separated from what he was saying. That's how the church ends up becoming a place of Hatred, when we just pick out verses right off the page and say, this is what Jesus says, so therefore you're not welcome here. Heartbreaking that that's how the church acts sometimes, and also very evident why the church is in decline. Instead, let the words of Christ move in you, stir you to question how you might be able to live and love more like Jesus. Because this life to which we have been called is one that demands our undivided attention. And the world does not get changed by those who give up. It's changed by those who count the cost and shift their priorities to accomplish the task. So let us be 
true disciples who follow Jesus, not just follow him around. Let us be challenged by the words of Christ and not comfortable with them. Let us count the cost of discipleship and shift our priorities toward Christ. And let us pray.